Hello, and welcome to the Magic for Realists podcast. This is the 22nd dose, and it's called A Poetic Fiasco. And I'm making this podcast, well, this one actually is my first time trying a new microphone setup and recording in my studio space. If you've been following me on Instagram, you know I have a new physically larger studio space to make all sorts of creative art in. And so I'm also trying recording there instead of at home. And I'm trying a fancy microphone with a, like my laptop is in front of me and there's like little bars going up and down on the recording thing. Uh, So this is a bit of a new experience. I might have to put some sort of shield over the laptop because it's almost distracting me. Anyways, um, those of you who don't know, so far I've just been recording these on my phone because amazingly, you don't need a lot of technology to make a podcast. You can have a lot of technology to make it, you know, the sound quality more professional. But I decided to start these before I had that all set up because I just wanted to talk to you as if you were my friends. And I was used to sending voice notes to friends on my phone, so I just started talking to you that way. And I'm hoping to keep that kind of friendly tone going even while improving the sound quality. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, Zooming out, the reason I'm making this podcast is because I think I have something to share about the poetic nature of everyday life, about some of the metaphors and nuances and beauty and poignancy that I've found in my life so far. And by talking about that and highlighting it, I hope that it brings something interesting and um, maybe challenging or chewy or um, enlivening to your life. And I'm making this one in particular because in the What to Expect episode way back at the beginning, which was in January, I've been doing this for quite a few months now and it feels great. (laughs) Side note. Anyways, I said that I was going to be reading poetry, and I've noticed that I haven't been reading that much, and so I think it's time for a poetry episode. So this one's called A Poetic Fiasco. That's because the poem I'm going to read you is one that I wrote, and it's titled Fiasco. Also because Fiasco, putting that in the title of the of the of this dose of magic for realists, allows a little bit of flexibility if... Um, the format or uh, editing or something goes a bit strange. So what I'm going to do is read this poem that I wrote, and I'm going to read it twice. It's quite long, but I think poetry is best read twice because you miss a lot the first time. And then I've written some questions for myself on little pieces of paper as if you were interviewing me. I'm trying to guess what you might ask. You're welcome to ask questions after the fact. But uh, for now, I'm just going to imagine what you might ask. And I'm going, they're on pieces of paper. You can hear this. And uh, they're in, I'm just putting them now into a box, kind of like a hat. And uh, then I'm going to pull them out at random and answer your questions, your hypothetical, or your hypothetical questions. And uh, that'll give you a little bit more background to the poem. So settle in. This is me reading Fiasco. Fiasco. Two years later, you grazed my back on your way to the frying pan, 
which is when I knew that our hearts had not forgotten. Though our minds learned the lesson, our veins remained alive. So we picked corn salad from your hearty winter garden. I followed you around for the simplest of tasks, like a collie or a shadow or a prayer. I told you, tomorrow I leave to meet my man. I don't know where he's flying me to. And you smiled and didn't say whether or not he'd told you. When I got there, I waited for the opportune time to tell your friend about how I giggled as you palpated my chest with your toes. How this time, a bit more cautious, I didn't kiss you. Nor you, me, unlike the first time in the dewy field, after the swankiest housewarming I've ever attended. It still is. Three days into our sandbar vacation seemed as good a time as any to bring you into the conversation on a warm dock. The dock thrust into the tropical sea, whose name I was never told and now never want to know, for fear that would cause the hat I deliberately left on that perfect sand to find its way back to me and pile onto my head memories so secretive they'd cause all my hair to fall out. But back then my hair was long and everything was simple. All you did was make me curry at 8 p.m. I ached with the taste of truth as you told me tales of climbing a castle wall and finding hobos in a French cave. So on that dilapidated dock, freshly fucked, all I said as the light lingered was, and I'd like to explore more. And my lover said, sure, whatever. The whole rest of our tropical time, I bet he wasn't distracted by the fresco of you. You, who, when informed of my midnight return flight, wrote back politely, sure. And then you wrote her name, and you put in some stupid sentence about discretion and the availability of your humble couch. I told my lover I was disappointed. He was sympathetic. We had that kind of an honest thing going. But what he and I had, honestly, was kind of going, going, going. And when I left the smorgasbord of sweetness, two cavities remained. One shaped like a sun hat with a brim that covered all, but all my dreams in its shadow. The other as big as a French cave. How deep and wide it is, I couldn't tell you for sure, because I never went inside. But from the earth's breath, I felt escaping at the entrance. I'll bet it was as big as anything. Thank God for Mexican dentists. Whew, I, I don't know if I've read that out loud in a while. And uh, yeah, I'm just gonna take a little breath there and then I'll read it to you again. Fiasco. Two years later, you grazed my back on your way to the frying pan, which is when I knew that our hearts had not forgotten. Though our minds learned the lesson, our veins remained alive. So we picked corn salad from your hearty winter garden. I followed you around for the simplest of tasks, like a collie or a shadow or a prayer. I told you, tomorrow I leave to meet my man. I don't know where he's flying me to and you smiled and didn't say whether or not he'd told you. When I got there, I waited for the opportune time to tell your friend 
about how I giggled as you palpated my chest with your toes. How this time, a bit more cautious, I didn't kiss you. Nor you, me, unlike the first time in the dewy field, after the swankiest housewarming I've ever attended, still is. Three days into our sandbar vacation seemed as good a time as any to bring you into the conversation on a warm dock. The dock thrust into the tropical sea, whose name I was never told and now never want to know, for fear that would cause the hat I deliberately left on that perfect sand to find its way back to me and pile onto my head memories so secretive they'd cause all my hair to fall out. But back then my hair was long and everything was simple. All you did was make me curry at 8 p.m. I ached with the taste of truth as you told tales of climbing a castle wall and finding hobos in a French cave. So on that dilapidated dock, freshly fucked, all I said as the light lingered was, and I'd like to explore more. And my lover said, sure, whatever. The whole rest of our tropical time, I bet he wasn't distracted by the fresco of you. You, who, when informed of my midnight return flight, wrote back politely, sure. And then you wrote her name, and you put in some stupid sentence about discretion and the availability of your humble couch. I told my lover I was disappointed. He was sympathetic. We had that kind of an honest thing going. But when he and I had, honestly, was kind of going, going, going. And when I left the smorgasbord of sweetness, two cavities remained. One shaped like a sun hat with a brim that covered all my dreams in its shadow. The other as big as a French cave. How deep and wide it is, I couldn't tell you for sure, because I never went inside. But from the earth's breath I felt escaping at the entrance, I'll bet it was as big as anything. Thank God for Mexican dentists. At poetry readings, people snap their fingers instead of clapping because once poetry lands really well, clapping is kind of jarring. Okay, that was fiasco. Now, first question. What's your favorite line? Hmm, this time on reading it, I really liked the line, I followed you around for the simplest of tasks, like a collie or a shadow or a prayer. And then I also really like, well, I've, I've noticed in my writing that one of my favorite feelings in myself to elicit is kind of like a, a thud or a gasp uh, and a bit of like, a bit of digging around necessary. So I really like the last line, thank God for Mexican dentists, because it kind of makes me it makes me smile in this sort of like, yeah, kind of gasping way, like as if Mexican dentists could like solve the cavities left by, by disappointment and love, <laughs> like as if, as if you could go to a dentist and, and like get your love holes filled in. Like there's this sort of like gasping, um, like unreasonableness to it that's also 
kind of exposes the whole thing. Um, so when I landed on that line, I, I did kind of gasp inside, like, oh, oh, that's the sound I want my heart to make in poetry often. It's like, oh, yes. Okay, next question. Oh, how does this poem make you feel? Uh, so I get a little bit of that gasp that I, I like to feel. Um, I also feel, I just feel nostalgic. I feel curious. Um, and I feel satisfied because, because it captures something to me that is, like poetry is great because when you feel like you can't put something in words, you just put it in between the words in a poem. And then it's kind of the closest thing I can get to, to um, writing about the ineffable. Yeah, so it makes me feel a bit satisfied that that part of what I was trying to capture is hidden in here, in between the words. Okay, next question. Is this poem a true story? Uh, yes, this poem is a true story. In uh, It actually happened. The gist of it actually happened. And um, at first it was a totally different poem, um, trying to write about the feeling of this the saga with uh, this man with the couch <laughs> and and it was you know that that story of kind of unfulfilled potential um, and it was a little bit more elaborate and it went into the feeling of his house and the peace and quiet I felt there and this like deep relaxation which I still kind of draw on for inspiration I think um, and maybe that's another poem but then I I could feel that the there was this like the experience with him was completely intertwined with the experience with my lover and and uh, this is a past story by the way this is not current <laughs> this is from a while back in case anybody currently in my life is listening, this isn't a, a current story. Um, yeah, so the feeling of, no, like that that intersection was, was juicy and interesting and held some of the key to how I was holding and processing the story. So the poem kind of went towards that intersection um, and I'm not sure I succeeded at, like, uh, sometimes the words are a bit tricky of like, so it's, it's written from my perspective as if I'm talking to the man with the couch and, but like referencing the other man. And I don't know if that is always clear and maybe the confusion is okay because it's probably some of what it feels like on the inside. Um, yeah, so I, I guess I want a bit of that confusion but I'm not sure if it's too much. Like there's a part where I, uh, like the, with the like you and our, and like three days into our sandbar vacation seemed as good a time as any to bring you into the conversation. Like the first hour I'm like, is that clear that it's about the other person or not the couch man? Um, I don't know, but maybe that, maybe that confusion is important because it's like there's sort of it's it's a tangle inside um, 
Yeah, so it's a true story. And I noticed that I really like writing about, I like writing from my own experience. And I think it's probably in, in some ways what we always do when we make art is we're somehow drawing and synthesizing on our own experience. Um, sometimes I like to hide behind it being fiction because I want the freedom to um, take it in new directions. And so sometimes it goes to the point where it doesn't feel like a true story anymore. But I remember this, um, this was one of the memorable things from college years. I read this, I was in this um, history class about, it was like history about war memorials. So it wasn't a war history class. It was about how we memorialize war, which is really fascinating to think about that there's the the story of what actually happened in the war, but over time that is not what we remember. Somebody gets to write the history and somebody gets to make the memorial. And so on a really large scale of like whole society's impressions of huge events in the past and their it just shapes their identity, how they choose to memorialize it. And even like who decides where the physical memorials go and what they look like and who's the artist and like that's that's not a given it's, it might seem like it by the time we see it but somebody's deciding that like there was a lot of other angles to take on a story that we're not getting taught or shown and uh, one of the books we read in that class was called the things we carried I believe and I'm sorry I don't remember who wrote it right now but uh, it was stories of the Vietnam War and they the author told stories over and over again, like the same story from different angles. And he talked a lot about different kinds of truth. Okay, I just tried pausing and looking that up. Whoa, new technology. Uh, it's called The Things They Carried and it's by Tim O'Brien. And O'Brien writes about different kinds of truth that there's like, the truth of what happened, which is probably harder and harder to ascertain as time goes on. And then there's the story truth. And story truth, like, kind of accurately conveys a truth of what it felt like to be there. And this distinction has stayed with me because um, we, I think that myths are operating on this level, and a lot of sacred texts are operating on this level where they are true. But because we think there's only one form of truth, we get kind of caught up because, you know, it didn't like happen the way like math equations happen. So some of my writing works with that same principle where something will be true in that it's capturing something of either how I felt or something I experienced or have seen happen, but it might not have be like, quote, accurate to the facts, like as if you'd you know, transcribed the script. So even this poem, like the, the, the order or the exact words, I don't, I don't remember anymore if that's what happened, but it is tr like, was it actually the third day on the sandbar vacation? I don't remember. It doesn't matter. The point was, it wasn't when we first got there and it wasn't at the end. So saying three days in is about, is true to how it felt. So yes, it's a true story.
Okay, the next question. When did you write this poem? Uh, I wrote this poem probably a, a few, a year or two after the story happened. Um, sometimes I write poems in the moment, but I think most of what I write feels like it needs to kind of like compost for quite a while. Uh, I've noticed that in my dreams, there seems to be sort of like a bit of a time lag, like this is my nighttime dreams. Sometimes there, there's like an element of what is currently happening that I'm processing, but there's also characters from like a long time ago that show up in my dreams. And it feels like those deeper layers of my psyche are not, are not necessarily like up to speed with the current happenings. Like there, there's this deeper layer that's sort of back in time, but time's not really operating um, the same way at that layer. Almost like deeper, like deeper geological time has a different time scale. So it feels like my memories and my deeper creative process are on a different time scale. And uh, so I didn't write this at the time. I wrote it much later. Oh, and the next question. Is there something you'd like to improve? Uh, I'm not sure if it's, sometimes I think it might be a little bit long. I wonder if, if it's, if people can follow along the whole time, but I also don't know what I would take out. Um, but it might be interesting. Sometimes I've written whole poems and then I've kind of like physically just scratched out a whole bunch of words and taken as almost like just get to the very bare bones of the poem itself. And I think I've already done that once with this poem from the extended description of the Couchman. I don't know why I'm calling him Couchman, but anyways, the Couchman's house, like that got all scratched. Um, but I wonder if there's a version of this that could be um, simplified even more. Uh, and then I also wonder if there's a version that could be extended into like a whole short story. This feels kind of like it's it's um, between the two, like it's genre, genre bending between a short story and a poem because it's like a long poem story. Um, yeah. Okay, next question. How do you go about writing a poem? Um, by this, I'm guessing I'm going to take this to mean like, you know, practically like, where do I write? How do I write? Do I edit it? That kind of thing. Um, so the, the paper I'm reading it from is typewritten. I have two typewriters. One writes in kind of like classic typewriter font. And when I got this typewriter about the classic one about 10 years ago, I was living in an off-grid cabin and uh, I wrote a lot of poetry on it and a lot of like these fun musings that became this, it's almost like the paper version of the podcast way back when. Um, it was like a blog of sorts, but I would physically mail it out to people. And that typewriter seemed to have an actual voice, as in like, I would sit down and a certain kind of style would come into the typewriter. 
And I think other writers have had this experience with writing implements like pens or computers or typewriters that they seem to have a voice that they like to write in. And that typewriter really liked this certain kind of like, it was like a rhyming sonnet. Like I just wrote so many of those on that typewriter. Um, so I got a second typewriter maybe a year or two ago and it writes in kind of like cursive, like a little bit more rounded and connected letters. It's a very beautiful font. And, uh, oh, somebody's car alarm's going off outside. I'm not sure if you can hear that. <laughs> Anyways, um, so when I, when I write poems, I tend to sometimes write them first on the typewriter or just uh, grab a journal and write in them or Sometimes I write on the computer. I can type faster than I can write. So if ideas are coming quickly, I'll type it first on my on my laptop. And then I do really like seeing them typed out on paper um, at, a, at a later process. And I find paper really fun to edit with, with like scratching out and, and writing in things. Um, so sometimes I'll rewrite them physically quite a few times to edit it that way. Or sometimes I edit on the computer. Okay, and the last question, is there any magic in this poem for realists? This is tying it back to the theme of the podcast, or the namesake of the podcast. Um, well, yes, I think there is magic for realists in here, because I feel like there's, there's a sensitivity to a few details, and there's an acknowledgement of the complicated nature of our affections and our desires, which I think is a real thing that also contains um, a lot of the spark and liveliness of life. And I tried to capture that in this poem. And there's also a, a hidden thing that I want to pull out. This, I, this part about the hat, um, kind of in the middle I write, um, Okay, the dock thrust into the tropical sea, whose name I was never told, and now never want to know. For fear that would cause the hat, I deliberately left on that perfect sand to find its way back to me. So, that's true. I actually did leave a sun hat on that sandy beach. I can remember where I left it. Um, it wasn't fitting very well, and I knew it would decompose, and I decided I didn't need to take it with me for the rest of the trip. And so I left it there, and... There's this idea I've had for a few years of like, I call it a hearkener, or it's like a reverse souvenir. Um, so let me explain. So this goes back to some ideas I've mentioned before where I believe that our, our things that we consider ours kind of hold a bit of our energy. And so and the souvenirs work on the same principle. You, you get a souvenir because you want to take a little bit of the energy of the place where you were back with you. And so with the hat, the hat, I did the opposite. Instead of taking some of that place with me, though I did bring a seashell home, so that would be my souvenir, I also left a piece of myself there as in the hat. And, and I wanted to leave it there kind of as like a almost like a, not a beacon, but like a, a transmitter almost, where like, if I wanted to remember that place because it was, it was special and beautiful and poignant, um, that I would, 
I would be able to like link my memory to that hat on the beach. So I left it there with that in mind, knowing that it would be this little, like, um, not em ambassador or emissary, ambassador of, of me there, like an outpost of my energy that I could um, mystically connect to if I wanted to be connected to that place. Um, except for that the memories of that time have become more complicated as the story played out further. and as I'm no longer with the person I was on that vacation with, um, became sometimes a difficult thing to remember or um, a sad thing to remember or um, just, yeah, way more like nuanced and not straightforward. Uh, so that is captured in that line um, because when I wrote this poem, I was feeling that kind of the fear of what would happen if, if I really clearly remembered that. Um, yeah, so for fear that would cause the hat I deliberately left on that perfect sand to find its way back to me and pile into my head memories so secretive they'd cause all my hair to fall out. Um, yeah, so that hidden in this poem is another concept of a reverse souvenir of leaving something of yourself somewhere as a way to remember and like tie back to that energy. And then hearkener, the word that I used, um, is related to this concept. And it's the idea that if you want to become some someone or get somewhere, you can <laughs> you can get a souvenir before you get there as a way to kind of like um, pull that possibility closer to you. So a souvenir works backwards in time, like you already were there, and and you're remembering it. And a hearkener works forward in time where you get the thing um, because you're going to eventually get there. So, um, for example, I have, I have a, a desire to go to Australia one day. And so I have some pieces of clothing, like I just looked over and hanging up on my hooks here, there's this kind of really light weight two-tone beige scarf. Though when I look at it, it feels like something an Australian woman would wear in like a sandy, sandy sun, summer evening. One of the draws to Australia is the thought of it being really warm because I love warm weather. And so the scarf is like a hearkener of Australia. It's like a souvenir forward in time. It's like if time was reversed, that scarf would be a souvenir that I got in Australia, but instead it's the other way around where I get the scarf first and then I'll go to Australia. I hope that makes sense. I think it's a really fun, playful, interesting concept to work with. And um, so this poem has that little nugget alluded to in there. Okay, I'm going to read it to you one more time um, to see if some other stuff percolates up after these questions, after I've answered these questions. Um, and I'd like to just finish with reading the poem. So I'm going to do my little outro information right now and then just read the poem to end. So what you might want to know is how to get in touch with me. If you want to ask other questions, you can go to the Magic for Realists website, which is magicforrealists.ca. You can also follow me on Instagram and get in touch through either of those ways. And the other note is if you become a patron on patreon.com, 
then uh, I write out these poems and post them there. So if you are curious to read them or kind of chew on them more, uh, the written versions go to my patrons. So, and thank you to those of you who are patrons and to all of you who say hi. I really like knowing who you are and that you're listening. Um, and I would love to know if this technically sounds better once it gets into your ears. Okay, thanks for listening and I hope you have a bit of poetry in your life and some magic in your real world this week. And I'm going to finish by reading Fiasco. Fiasco. Two years later, you grazed my back on your way to the frying pan, which is when I knew that our hearts had not forgotten. Though our minds learned the lesson, our veins remained alive. So we picked corn salad from your hearty winter garden. I followed you around for the simplest of tasks, like a collie or a shadow or a prayer. I told you, tomorrow I leave to meet my man. I don't know where he's flying me to. And you smiled and didn't say whether or not he'd told you. When I got there, I waited for the opportune time to tell your friend about how I giggled as you palpated my chest with your toes. How this time, a bit more, <clears throat> a bit more cautious, I didn't kiss you. Nor you, me, unlike the first time in the dewy field after the swankiest housewarming I've ever attended, still is. Three days into our sandbar vacation seemed as good a time as any to bring you into the conversation on a warm dock. The dock thrust into the tropical sea, whose name I was never told and now never want to know, for fear that would cause the hat I deliberately left on that perfect sand to find its way back to me and pile onto my head memories so secretive they'd cause all my hair to fall out. But back then my hair was long and everything was simple. All you did was make me curry at 8 p.m. I ached with the taste of truth as you told tales of climbing a castle wall and finding hobos in a French cave. So on that dilapidated dock, freshly fucked, all I said was, as the light lingered was, and I'd like to explore more. And my lover said, sure, whatever. The whole rest of our tropical time, I bet he wasn't distracted by the fresco of you. You who, when informed of my midnight return flight, wrote back politely, sure. And then you wrote her name and you put in some stupid sentence about discretion and the availability of your humble couch. I told my lover I was disappointed. He was sympathetic. We had that kind of an honest thing going. But what he and I had, honestly, was kind of going, going, going. And when I left the smorgasbord of sweetness, two cavities remained. One shaped like a sun hat with a brim that covered all my dreams in its shadow. The other as big as a French cave. How deep and wide it is I couldn't tell you for sure because I never went inside. But from the earth's breath I felt escaping at the entrance, I'll bet it was as big as anything. Thank God for Mexican dentists.